Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the symposium. Today, it is going to be me and you, and we are going to talk about the problem of free will. I thought that this was a good idea because several times I've seen comments saying that you like how contemplative the symposium is. And uh, California Refugee, thank you for writing your comment on the previous symposium where you said that you really appreciate the fact that we are taking one step at a time and that this aids understanding. Now, I think that the problem of free will is one of those problems that are incredibly important. It is important because our idea of ourselves as free and morally responsible beings is basically a central part of the core of our narrative of self-consciousness. This is a fancy way of saying, well, it's important to us. And views that deny free will to us represent us with a significant challenge. Now, I think that we need to bear in mind that this topic has a vast literature. Some people have said that it has a literature that is comparable with the topic of God and the topic of religion. It spans 23 centuries at least. So it's a very, very, very important topic and it has been important for human beings for quite a while. Now, I have a presentation here that I think will help. Now, let us see here, the problem of free will, free will and moral responsibility. So, I'm gonna have a structure in this talk. First, I'm gonna talk to you about some basic concepts and some basic misunderstandings of the topic. Then I'm gonna describe you the problem in a nutshell. Then I'm going to show you actually what we call the problem of free will should be named the problems of free will, in plural. Then we're going to discuss some basic positions like hard determinism, compatibilism or soft determinism, hard indeterminism and libertarianism. And then we're going to talk about free will and moral responsibility. Let us start. Now, Free will is traditionally understood as the ability to do otherwise. This is not the only definition, but it is one of the most standard ones. And I will use this definition for the purpose of our discussion today. Now, if we look at it, it is not at all a simple notion. In fact, it is a very complex one because it involves notion like ability, doing and otherwise. Now, most of us would straightforwardly take that notion and think that it, it stands for one and only one thing. But if you have watched the symposium, you will see why I believe that this is unfortunately uh, an illusion. There are many, many, many ways of understanding these concepts. Now, let me just give you some distinctions in order to guide you and help you guide yourselves across a very, very, very complex discussion. So let us say that the ability to do otherwise has three compound notions. The notion of ability, the notion of doing, and the notion of otherwise. Now, let me just say that the notion of ability is one of these notions that we use a lot, but pause and ask yourself, what is an ability? Or what is a power? I'm sure that you will have some trouble giving a definition. And uh, there was a very famous saying by, I, don't, I think it was St. Augustine who said that I know what time is, except when I'm being asked to define it. 
And this shows a lot of the time one, and this is one of the beauties of philosophy that it shows us how what is familiar is actually in a sense magic. And you could say that it is a cause of enchantment, which is really useful when we're talking about this society of disenchantment where we, want, we find no value. Philosophy is really interesting and good and important in showing us how what we take as the most familiar things around us are actually really mysterious and we don't understand them as the intellectual orthodoxy of each time tells us we do. Now, let's think of, of this statement. I have the ability to lift a pen. What, what does this statement mean? When we're trying to ask this question, we're trying to analyze that statement, which is not very familiar, in terms of a more familiar statement. So the statement, I have the ability to lift a pen, can be, you could say, understood as, I have the power to lift a pen. Right, very well, Stelios, you will tell me. But what does it mean to have the power to lift a pen? Um, what about having the skill? To lift a pen or having the disposition to lift a pen. We can very frequently lead ourselves into roundabout definitions. So eventually you may say that to have the abilities to have a power, to have a power is to have a disposition, and to have a disposition is again to have an ability. This isn't an analysis of the concept, this is a roundabout way, a way of saying that basically Ability is a very fundamental concept. Not everyone agrees with it. Humeans would not agree with it. But for instance, if you embrace a lot of the Aristotelian framework, which I think is closer to common sense, you will basically think that powers are irreducible, which means unanalyzable, and we can't really get more fundamental. So it's something that we intuitively grasp, and we cannot give a more another definition. So, there is another distinction when it comes to abilities, the, the one between general and specific abilities. Think of the ability to play the piano. What about a famous pianist that doesn't have a piano? You could say that this person has the ability to play the piano, but they're not in, in circumstances that are conducive to them exercising that ability. So, for instance, you could say that this is a general ability. Another ability is the ability to play tennis. You may be the winner of, let's say, the Wimbledon contest, but if you don't have a tennis ball, you, you cannot play tennis. So, you could say the general abilities are powers we have, even when conditions for exercising them are absent. And we have also specific abilities that are general abilities, or you could say dispositions or powers, that we can exercise. They're abilities we possess in circumstances favorable to their exercise. Now, let's go to the notion of doing. We're doing a lot of things, but there's a distinction between passive and active doing if we really think about it. For instance, digestion is something that some people have said is something that we're doing and also choosing or deciding or acting is something that we are doing. So we could talk about the distinction between active and passive doing. So when we're talking about the ability to do otherwise, the question is otherwise than what? And the answer that a lot of people give, which is I think the only plausible answer to, to show how this is relevant 
to the whole discussion of the topic throughout the centuries is that to have the ability to do otherwise is to have the ability to do otherwise than what you did before, you do right now, or you will do in the past. Now, for the purposes of this discussion, I will use a working definition. So free will as a specific ability, which means a power that we can exercise, to actively do otherwise than, one, than what one did, does, or will do in the future. Excellent. Now, let us move to discuss some of the common misconceptions about the problem of free will. When people ask me what I was doing my PhD in philosophy on, I was telling them the philosophy of free will. And when they asked me, well, what do you believe about it? And I said that, yes, I do think that we have free will. They were constantly telling me, but how do we have free will? We live in a world where we are influenced by things. You will see that this is not the problem of free will. So another way to not think about the problem of free will is to portray it as the problem whether we have agency or whether we make decisions. Few people would deny that we make decisions or that we are affecting changes in the environment, which you could say is one of the most standard definitions of agency. So the problem of free will is better characterized as the problem whether we have freedom over choosing or freedom over acting. So it largely concerns whether we are free in making decisions and in acting. Of course, again, there is such a thing as conceptual play or conceptual games. You could slowly change the meaning of agency, or you could bring another meaning of agency. This would disrupt what we just said. But we have to carry on. Now, there are some phrases that are usually taken to describe the problem, but actually do not. So we are told things like, que sera sera, what will be will be, or the future will be brought forth by the past, or there is only one form, that the totality of states of affairs that hold in the universe can assume at any time. These are not exactly describing the problem of free will, although outside academia or in people who aren't well-versed in the topic, they seem to be describing it. The idea that, for instance, what will be will be is a tautology. It tells us nothing about the specific thing that will be. And... It tells us nothing about, for instance, how what will be will come about. The same, the same happens with the future will be brought forth by the past. We're not told about the manner in which it will be brought forth, and we're not told about the specific form of state of affairs at each time in the universe. And to show you why these actually do not describe the problem of free will, I want to tell you that they are compatible with an indeterministic universe. What will be, will be, is true everywhere, in all kinds of universe. Now, in order to dig deeper, we need to think that there are three basic questions. One is the semantic question. What does it mean to have free will? What does free will mean? The other question is the existential question. Does free will exist? This is the major question.
and the other one is the evaluative one. Is free will valuable? If yes, why is it? If not, why is it not valuable? Why should we not want it? So these three questions form, in a sense, the core of the problem of free will. That is why I said before we should talk about the problems of free will. And all of them are, to a very large extent, interconnected. Now, let me just talk to you about the problem of free will in a nutshell. So, commonly speaking, believing that we are free and that we are, in a sense, the agents of our own lives and the makers of our own destiny and responsible for our own actions, is part of common sense. You could say that it is a belief that develops quite naturally. Very few people would uh, not have it. So this kind of belief clashes with several other beliefs that we have about the universe. Whether these other beliefs are commonsensical or not is another matter. But there is a very interesting question with respect to how are we to reconcile that clash. For instance, the notion of free will comes in clash with several views of the universe as being rigidly deterministic, or with fatalism, as you will see. Some people think that fatalism is common sense or causal determinism is common sense. I don't think this, but I'm just introducing you the topic and showing you how it generates. So this is the problem of free will in a nutshell. We have a commonsensical belief, or we have a belief that we find it natural, or a, rise, a belief that is arising naturally, and this belief comes in clash with several key aspects of our modern worldview. And in fact, it is not just our modern worldview, it is also past worldviews that are not necessarily orthodox right now, but you could say that free will is one of the most important elements of our self-conception on the one hand, and on the other hand, it presents us with a problem because it clashes with several worldviews that have been orthodoxies across the centuries. So this raises up the question, how are we going to achieve coherence in our views? So, let us talk about the existential question and present the major challenges to the existence of free will. And let us fo focus on five basic challenges. One is logical determinism, which is the doctrine that has been traditionally called fatalism. The other is theological determinism, which some people have called theological fatalism. The other is the problem of causal determinism. The problem of causal indeterminism comes next. And then there is a semantic objection that says that whatever holds about the universe, whatever metaphysics we embrace, the concept itself is senseless, therefore it cannot be true. Now, let us focus on logical and theological determinism. Now, let us say that we have some assumptions that could be understood as being commonsensical. One is, every proposition is either true or false. 
uh, I think that this is called the law of excluded middle. Assumption number two, propositions about the future have a fixed truth value. So each proposition is either true or false. Now, think of this. We normally think that a lot of the actions we performed were actions that we could have chosen not to perform. A lot of the choices we made are choices we think we could have made otherwise. But if it is true right now, and it has always been true, that I will make a choice tomorrow or 10 years from now, then how can I do otherwise? How can I choose otherwise? If it is true right now that I'm going to perform an action in 10, mi 10 minutes from now or 10 years from now, again, how can I act otherwise? So you could say that there is a problem with free will because if on the one hand I think that I can choose otherwise and I can do otherwise, how can I do that if it's already true and it has always been true that I'm going to make a particular choice and perform a particular action? And if we think of it, not just in terms of one question, not just think of, you know, it just fated that I will, let's say, celebrate my, my marriage, for instance. This, this doctrine is talking about the entirety of the universe. Let's say that all propositions about everything about the universe, about the past, present, and future, all of these propositions have fixed truth values. So if I'm going to, let's say, commit a crime or not, it's already true. And it has always been true. It has always been the case. I may not know it, but it's, in a sense, set in stone. That's the problem of fatalism. And it is one of the problems that Aristotle was talking about when he was talking about the famous example of the sea battle that is going to happen tomorrow in, I think, uh, the categories. He was saying, for instance, that it is either true or false that a sea battle will happen tomorrow. And if we think of every proposition as being either true or false, eternally so, then it is already set in stone what we're going to choose and what we're going to do. So some of the people who have tried to work their way around this have denied that it is true that every proposition is either true or false. They have denied the law of excluded middle, especially when it comes to the statements about the future. And that is why we have the phrase, the future is unwritten. This phrase, that the future is unwritten, is basically a metaphysical claim, and it is essentially an anti-fatalistic claim. It rejects the metaphysics of fatalism, and it asserts something about the universe. Something that, for instance, experience may not be able to teach us. And that is why we are saying, for instance, that metaphysics as a discipline has been traditionally a different discipline than natural sciences. And you could say that one of the disasters of contemporary thinking is that people are trying to model philosophy on the natural sciences. Anyway, I'll talk to you about this another time. So theological determinism is very similar to fatalism. 
and essentially it is the same problem although it is presented with the sort of different metaphysical background. Think of Oedipus Rex that we did the previous time in Symposium 44. Apollo knew the destiny of Oedipus. So, in a sense, it was fated that Oedipus was going to kill his father, marry his mother, and give birth to children of incest. And it was already true and Apollo knew it. That's the theological deterministic challenge in a polytheistic context. But we can talk about it in a monotheistic context as well. The problem is essentially the same. God is omniscient. God knows the truth value of every proposition. So God knows whether it is true or false that I'm going to choose something in the future or do something in the future for everything that I'm going to choose and everything that I'm going to do and everything that I'm not going to choose and everything that I'm not going to do, God already knows whether I'm going to do it or not. So this is the problem of theological determinism. And several solutions or attempted solutions have been conjured. One has to do with denying that there are, again, as I said before, denying the idea that we can know the propositions about the future or that God knows or that there are propositions about the future with a set fixed value. And that is why we're talking about the idea that the future isn't written again. Some theo theologians have, I, th I think it was Suarez, Francisco Suarez, but I may be mistaken, have said that God's foreknowledge, that divine foreknowledge isn't inconsistent with free choice because they're saying something like God already knows what you're going to do freely. Now, this seems to me a bit of a weird position to make, but it is one very big tradition in theological thinking about the problem of free will and how it clashes with some of the assumptions or how it seems to be clashing with some of the assumptions of um, God of Christianity, especially when it comes to God's omniscience. This is interesting to see because you see that essentially the problem of free will is a problem that across the ages is assuming a different vocabulary and the challenges to free will are basically to a very large extent renewed every, every time, every, every time the spirit of the age, ages changes, we have new formulations of the problem of free will. In the modern times, there isn't so much of a reference to divine entities, to God or, uh, let's say, many gods, and how they know the future, and this poses problems for whether we are free in acting or choosing. We are just talking about nature now, and essentially you will see that the same problem has changed its vocabulary. Now there is not any reference to the problems that divine omniscience raise, raises for our freedom of choice and freedom of action, but you will see how the problem of living in a mechanistic universe or a universe that is completely random presents to free will. Now, let us talk about causal determinism. Here is, in a sense, 
the major, major, major objection to free will. To show you what determinism is, I want to start by showing you one of the descriptions of the deterministic vision. We discussed this with Josh in Symposium 24, where we debated the question whether we can be morally responsible in a deterministic universe. I think it is important to talk about it again. So, I will talk to you about the famous Laplace's demon hypothesis. Pierre-Simon Laplace was a very influential French mathematician. I think um, he was... Uh, he met Napoleon and he presented him a model of the universe and he was considered to be a very influential figure. So, he is trying to show the deterministic vision of the universe. And uh, when he was asked, I, th I think, that's an anecdote, I may be wrong, but I think Napoleon asked him at some point, where is the place for God in this universe? Uh, he asked, he answered, your majesty, the, the, this works without this, this works without this assumption, something like that. So, he writes, we ought then to regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its anterior state and the cause of one which is to follow, given for one instant an intelligence which could comprehend all the forces by which nature is animated and the respective situation of the beings who compose it, an intelligence sufficiently vast to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in the same formula the movement of the greatest atom. For it, nothing would be uncertain, and the future, as the past, would be present to its eyes. The human mind offers in the perfection which it has been able to give to astronomy a feeble outline of this intelligence. You see here that the deterministic vision is, by and large, a very key aspect of the mechanistic worldview. Because, essentially, in this worldview, everything works like a machine. Everything is like a cog in a machine, whose laws of motion we can learn by modern physics. Astronomy is such a discipline. What we're doing, essentially, is we're trying to find models of the movement of celestial bodies, and, and also of other phenomena like um, black holes, cosmic radiation, and forces like that. We are trying to treat them, each of them, as in a sense entirely passive, and we are trying to see how they are born. That is why, for instance, we are saying, let us take this state of the universe right now, and let us see how it was brought about. So, there are plenty of advantages to mechanistic thinking, because you could say that it represents a push towards understanding. And that kind of understanding is an understanding that is not mythological. We are not appealing to, let's say, the will of deities, to Zeus, Odin, or let's say Apollo, or Humbaba, or whatever. Humbaba is not a god. Um, we are appealing to the actual state of the universe before that. That is what Laplace says, we ought then to regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its interior state. So, for instance, we would say in astronomy, let us take a particular phenomenon and let us treat it as the effect of its anterior state. 
and let us also find the patterns and regularities that take place in the universe, the hold on the universe. And when we are trying to do this, we will expand our understanding. So Laplace here is making a leap and he's making an inductive leap. Now, this doesn't mean that he is wrong because he is presenting a view of the universe. But he says, let us look at how astronomy works. There is no reason to think that things operate in a different way. So for instance, determinists are saying things like, we are natural beings, 100% natural beings. Every other object in nature is brought about by causal forces and the previous state of the universe. There is no freedom, in a sense, in physical objects. And they would say that human beings are physical objects, so why would we think in the first place that we operate differently? So to understand human beings is, in principle, the same as understanding celestial bodies and the movement of celestial bodies as far as the deterministic or naturalistic deterministic hypothesis is concerned. There is a major difference when it comes to, for instance, the things that are being cited for explanation. So for instance, they would say something like, we can explain a particular action in terms of motives and conditions that did not prevent someone from acting on that motive. But the question is, how was that motive generated? And then they're going to say that we should treat this as an entirely physical question, and we should try and look at the physical conditions that lead us into have a particular motivation. And they would say, for instance, it's a condition on the brain, it's a condition in the body that triggers your nerves in a way that sends signals to the brain, and the brain send signals to muscles, and the muscles contract, and they move, things like that. Essentially, this is one of the Hobbesian views of human nature that he is developing in the Leviathan, and that we will definitely talk about in the future. So what Laplace is saying is that the natural sciences have expanded our knowledge, and they have generated a kind of agreement within the community of natural scientists that does not exist in philosophers, among philosophers, for instance. Philosophers disagree about everything. In metaphysics, there is almost no one who agrees with anyone else. Almost. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.